Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and way back in 2018, the data captured from identity crime victims contacting the ITRC began to show a statistical anomaly. Just a blip at first, but by the next year, it was clear what we were seeing was not a glitch, but a trend. There were an increasing number of victims who identified as black, well beyond what you would expect to see based on the percent of the population who are African American or black. Being the curious people that we are, we started to look for research that might explain why. Was there just greater awareness of identity crimes and where to get help that was leading people to the ITRC? Or were there really more identity crime victims in communities of color? Turns out, There was no research on this topic at the time. From that seemingly simple question, why, was born a multi-year, multi-phase program we call Identity in Practice, supported by LifeLock, a gin brand, Synchrony, and the Wells Fargo Foundation. The first two years and two phases have tackled the research component, resulting in a report issued this week, and it's the topic for today's discussion. You can download the report at idtheftcenter.org forward slash publications to read the specific findings. There's too much good information to cover in a single podcast, so we are breaking this episode into two parts, posted one day apart. In this first part, we're going to focus broadly on the issue of identity crimes in black communities with our panel of experts. Before I introduce them, though, a few notes. Our quantitative and qualitative research was conducted by the Black Researchers Collective in Chicago with the assistance of Ty McKethan of the ITRC staff. A big shout out to our stellar research team. And here's the answer to the question, are black communities victimized at a higher rate than the general U.S. population? Yes. Here to talk about the dynamics of that key finding is Jill Roberts from Clarify, a community support organization in Philadelphia that helped organize the focus groups in that city, and Jordan Pressinger, a researcher at Princeton University and a one-time intern at the ITRC. And as always, we're joined by the ITRC's very own CEO, Eva Velasquez. Welcome, Eva. Great to be here, James. Welcome, Jill. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. And welcome to you, Jordan. Thanks, James. Great to be on the podcast. I'm going to start by turning to you, Eva, because the ITRC has spent, you know, the better part of two, two and a half years exploring this issue of identity crimes in Black communities. So why? (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you asked me that, James. And actually, it's been longer than that. Uh, We started this project two and a half years ago, but it came to our awareness back in 2018. Um, And it was in in part due to a grant that we received from the Department of Justice to look at accessibility in our service delivery for members of the blind, low vision and deaf, hard of hearing uh, populations. Now, that was about accessibility, truly looking at how we had our, our website structured and our our. Uh, phone tree and all of those types of things. But one of the really interesting things that came out of that was not just the accessibility issue, but culture 
And thinking in terms of how culture matters with these communities, and that got us thinking about, well, how does culture matter with all communities? And what else do we need to be looking at? And hence the notion around how do different communities uh, use, maintain, protect, and recover their identity? And does this matter in our program service delivery? We wanted to ask those questions. We did a research. We looked for research that would answer those questions and discovered that it really didn't exist. So that was the genesis for doing this research. We saw the gap and we wanted to learn more. So that's how it started. You know, one of the things that we noticed um, in our own information, just looking at the population of people who contact the ITRC every year, was um, African-American and um, uh, victims were contacting us at a higher rate compared to what you would expect when you look at the population distribution. So uh, almost not quite 50% higher than what you'd expect, but it was still a significant increase over the, the, the number of people that you would really expect to see contacting us. And that was going into the pandemic. And that has continued since. And one of the groups that we, uh, in the in the course of conducting this research that we came across, is um, a community-based group in the Philadelphia area, Clarify. Jill, that's your group. So why don't you tell us about your organization and, and really how identity crimes factor into what you're doing and, and why you decided to, to join in with this merry band of rogues to look at this, uh, this issue of identity crimes in, in the black community. Thanks, James. That's, that's a great question. Um, I will start with who Clarify is and then sort of respond to the question about how we got here. Clarify has uh, been around for about low 50 years, and we have been providing housing and financial empowerment services to the Delaware Valley, mostly primarily to low to moderate income individuals. And we are the largest provider of them in this area. And that looks like things like housing counseling, working on credit, safe banking products, home purchase, home sustainability and repair, things like that. And we do what we do really well. I'm really very proud to work for Clarify. We come at everything from a person-to-person -person standpoint. It's one-to-one -one counseling, and that builds trust. And we come at it with empathy. We are always, you know, putting ourselves, if you will, in the other person's shoes and understanding what they are saying to us. And when I was approached by the black researchers uh, collective, I, I sort of was like, oh, sure, we can help you find individuals who are black and who have had their identity stolen. And I, I went to our um, data folks and I said, hey, can you drop down a list and, and let me see how many clients we have that have that data point of identity theft. And they said, oh, we, we don't have that. I'm like, that can't be possible. And it was interesting. We don't have a button, if you will, to check box. People don't necessarily have their identity stolen and show up at our door. 
it is the um, after effects of that identity theft that get them to us, where their credit has been damaged and they don't know why. Then they find out it's identity theft, but that's not the problem. But the problem is they need to clear up their, their, their credit. And when they come to us, we start talking to them and they open up and really start to trust us and the counselor that they're working with. And we can provide suggestions of places to go and how to go about dealing with the identity theft. But the way they get to us, quite honestly, and how we got involved in this is the after effects of identity theft. We're going to explore that a little bit more here in a minute, but that is fascinating that it is the it is the aftermath. It is that impact that brings people and to to ask for assistance, and they didn't really know why what was happening to them was happening to them. I'm going to bring in Jordan out of the conversation. Jordan, as the professional researcher in this conversation, you've looked at this issue um, for I know since we first encountered you at the ITRC when you were still a graduate student. Um, you've been looking at identity issues, and now you've looked specifically around uh, the, the the black community. Uh, what is it that, that attracted you to this area of research, and, and, and what is it that you're finding? Yeah, um, the first thing I want to say on that, James, is just to echo what everyone else has said about the, the lack of research and the lack of specific attention to this question. Um, there's only a couple articles that I've encountered where people have talked about, you know, understanding how factors like race matter for identity theft. Um, and what Jill said about not having a checkbox at Clarify for this uh, when she asked about it uh, is also not unique uh, among organizations I've spoken to. So uh, many places uh, can't really can't really parse out identity theft from from the other issues they deal with. Um, I got into this uh, into this area of research um, because of the Equifax breach in 2017, and um, exploring as a consumer what I should do about that, realizing what I felt were some of the insufficient ways that the media, in particular, was talking about identity theft. Um, so I've been studying it about five, a little over five years now. Um, I ha- I should clarify, I don't. I haven't specifically researched issues in the black community separate from other communities. I was interested in how identity theft uh, affects anybody and how people go about resolving it. And it was in the course of asking those questions that I started to see some interesting things about uh, the black community, specifically how people, how it affects people's trust. So, the primary thing that I've seen is that uh, low-income and Black communities in my study tended to experience identity theft as, as in terms of uh, their kind of interpersonal relationships. The low-income communities and communities of color tended to interpret the experience of identity theft uh, in terms of interpersonal threat. Uh, so they started thinking about how their data Uh, put them at risk because of the people around them. Um, And they told me about various steps they took to try to protect themselves from people around them, including changing who they hung out with or who they allowed to enter their home. Um, 
uh, not asking people to help them out in certain ways. Like some, I remember one, uh, one black man telling me he no longer was going to let people ask people to check his mail for him. Um, and that was very different from the response in uh, higher income and and among higher income and white respondents in my study, where they tended to blame organizations for identity theft and request or demand that organizations do more to protect them. Did that surprise you? In some ways it did. Uh, it's There's a lot of research, uh, especially in my field, sociology, about trust issues in the Black community. But so it wasn't necessarily surprising to me that in communities that have often been on the or have often been, you know, ex exploited, marginalized, mistreated, that we would see, you know, issues of mistrust result from identity theft. I think it surprised me that upper income and white communities were so mistrustful of organizations because research uh, research in my field tends to show that organizations serve their needs better than anyone else. So in some ways, I would expect I would expect the mistrust of organizations to also be highest among low income and com low income communities and communities of color. Eva, I'll come back around to you because at the ITRC, we talk to to identity crime victims every day um, across the entire spectrum of the population and, and all, all forms of, of demographics and education levels of, and all of the, the th ways you can slice and dice the data around a population. Uh, when you looked at the findings, what, if anything, surprised you? And then I also want to dig in a little bit about this trust issue that, that uh, Jordan has, uh, has raised to see what is it that victims tell us around trust? Well, you know, there were there were two things that that jumped out at me, and you're right. Um, not only does does ITRC talk to victims every day, I've I've had a lot of conversations and exposure to people that are going through recovery of from an identity crime, and the the depth of the emotional response. Now, I'm I'm I am used to dealing with people's trauma, and it is a traumatic experience for folks. And I'm very used to dealing with the increased uh, emotional response when people know, when it's known perpetrator identity theft or familial identity theft. And so when we were looking at some of the responses from the focus group, the depth of the emotional turmoil, for lack of a better word, particularly when it was around um, a known perpetrator, a family member, a close family friend, that what I guess I didn't feel like it could get any worse, right? I've talked to people who are absolutely devastated, but in some ways it just felt like it was even more so for this community. And the second thing though that I saw was the depth of uh, compassion almost. And it it appears to me, and we have we really have more work to do and we have to suss this out, but in so many ways, uh, familial identity theft can sometimes almost be a means to an end where it's not about not caring about the victim or the person whose credentials you're misusing. It's about, I have a need that I have to meet for my family and myself, and this is a way that I can get that need met. And so I just, I simply have to do this. And 
there's a lack of understanding about the long-term consequences of doing that, particularly when parents do use their children's identity credentials. And the, again, the lack or the, um, the depth of the empathy that is sitting right next to a lot of the pain and the, I have to deal with this and how could you do with, do this to me, that conflict, in addition to, you know, the, the myriad problems that are occurring, that startled me. Jill, you've had a chance to look at the, the, the research and, and, you know, you helped organize the focus group um, in Philadelphia where we talk to actual victims um, did anything there jump out at you as being surprising or was there anything uh, that maybe confirmed uh, other kind of um, experiences that you'd seen? The first part of your question, you know, did anything surprise me? What surprised me is the second part of your question. No, I was surprised that I wasn't surprised. I was hoping to be surprised by something that I found, you know, the, the part you know, Eva, you talk about the, the, the depth of the emotional aspect to identity theft and then the empathy that people see, that you were seeing with people who were, um, their identity was stolen by a family or a friend. And I read the report and kept going, mm-hmm, yep, yep, that makes sense. Yep, we understand that. We see that daily. Um, and... What it has done, and I not thank you for this study, but it has confirmed for us, which something Clarify has been working on, is becoming a trauma-informed organization, which the people who work here don't necessarily, they were like, what do you mean by that? Because immediately when you say trauma, most people think of physical trauma, you know, a, a car accident or you or you tr- your trauma, but in the- Or a crime where it's a physical crime. crime, like an assault. Yeah. Oh, Jill, I totally understand what you're saying because we have that same experience. People think that only violent crimes create trauma when economic crimes also create trauma. It is, and it, it is so deep that you don't even, sometimes I don't know, and I will say this, I will, I will make an eye statement. You don't even realize how- much you are holding that trauma about something that is a financial um, crime, if you will, with the identity theft or um, some sort of fraud that was perpetrated upon you. And it's been, I would say, in the last several years that we at Clarify have really been looking at that as a, you know, our leadership team, we've been looking at it and how it affects the people that are trying you know, our, our team members are trying to help folks and there's all this trauma. So there's this idea that you have an hour long financial empowerment appointment. There may be 30 minutes of trust building and another 30 minutes of hearing about the trauma before you can even figure out how to get to the nugget of what the person is seeing you about. They want to buy a home, for instance, and to really get to that and figure that out. I think that the reports just confirmed for me, at least, and I'll make, again, I was like, yep, that's what we're seeing. But also I was surprised, uh, sadly, by um, 
the income bans and seeing, you know, the people that were suffering this identity theft weren't people making a lot of money, you know, respectfully speaking about that. You know, if you're making $50,000, I wouldn't think that somebody would be coming after my identity because there's just not a lot of reason because what resource, oh, right, it's the credit. It's getting a credit card, running it up, and then keep on going. So that was sort of a learning thing, which I, I just didn't have a lot of thought behind, I guess, because, you know, like I said, we don't have a checkbox. We don't have a, a uh, identity theft counseling appointment. So I guess that was more, was more confirmation. And I was surprised that I wasn't surprised. Jordan, you've, you've had a chance to look at, at the findings and you've been looking and, and you've, you've identified this, this the issue around trust. Um, what's your view of how, 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 how do you, um, how do you process what you've learned with what now we've learned? How do you weave those two together or do you? Yeah, this is a great question. And I want to come back to, I, I think I would revise my answer on what surprised me too, uh, uh, hearing kind of how the conversation has developed. Um, I think the other thing that surprised me is that these differences in trust that I found in my study, you know, interpersonal trust or issues in, in low-income communities and communities of color, organizational trust issues um, in other communities, those weren't related in my study to the way people were victimized. You might expect that people would have interpersonal trust issues if their identity was stolen by somebody they knew or somebody around them. But I found that in these communities, while some of the people I spoke to had pretty clear reason to believe it was somebody around them, even, even uh, low-income people of color uh, who knew that the person that victimized them was a complete stranger and even someone pretty distant from them. So I'm thinking, for example, of a woman who uh, who uh, had her identity stolen for uh, tax identity theft. Um, she found out that the person lived in Georgia when she lived in Brooklyn and she didn't know anybody there. She still, the issue for her was, I think some of the people I know could do this to me. So she interpreted it in terms of a survey, like surveying the community around her and thinking that some of the people she interacted with were the kind of people she thought could do this kind of thing. So even though none of them did it to her, it's this issue, this experience, awareness of how data can be used for all of these resources that Jill just mentioned, credit, tax, you know, tax refunds, all kinds of stuff, awareness of that made her start to wonder about people around her in a new way. And I didn't see that in in higher income uh, and white communities. I'm going to jump in here for a second. It's I think that's such an interesting comment and what you saw in your studies, uh, Jordan, because I, that didn't ping in my head. And I, I am a, a person of color, so I would say, yeah, it's very personal. But you, you said white or more affluent people who I think are white uh, blame the system, like the, not the system, but like organizations. And I just, I th I, that might be, 
that surprising to me because I just maybe I'm just being egocentric in that. But yeah, I I would to, I I wouldn't blame the well Equifax. I kind of blame them, but you yeah, I think if my identity was stolen, I would totally be looking at people. But that's sort of the community, if you will, that I think sometimes uh, low to moderate income black communities have because you have to lean on one another, and to have that trust broken, even if it is distant, you you relate it to what you know. That's a great point. Yeah, I think in in you know upper income and white communities, what I saw was people saying like, like I can't tell you how many times I heard people who are not in financial uh, you know professions or anything like that saying like my bank has to have better due diligence. You know, they're like somebody had to check an ID. Somebody should have noticed this. Somebody this or that. That's how people tended to interpret this, as opposed to like, I can't believe a person out there did this to me. Don't get me wrong. It's not that it's not that upper income and white communities or people from those communities didn't realize that there was a perpetrator. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just that they reserved sort of their greatest frustration with organizations that they thought should have had their back and, and been kind of the last line of defense against this. I'm going to call a halt here. We're going to sort of wrap up part one here. Well, that was fast. Yeah, it's 25 <laughs> minutes, 25 minutes already. And then in this next section, I'm going to go through some of the specific findings where we can dig into this and then go into the solutions and what, you know, the, what do we do from here? Because all, all this is great knowledge. We got to do something with it. We, we didn't undertake this just for this to, so we can be all all be smarter. We did it so we can actually improve the improve people's Our lives. Cert, yeah, service yeah. delivery. Thank you, Eva. Thanks, James. Thank you, Jill. Thanks again for having me, James. And thank you, Jordan. Great to be here. Thanks, James. Well, that's the end of part one of our two-part episode on identity and practice. If you want to learn more about the crimes and compromises that impact your identity, privacy, or security, visit our website at idtheftcenter.org. Part two, where we talk specifics about identity crimes in black communities, drops tomorrow. Join us then. Thanks for listening.